thank the people who made the drinks, the team. Can I give a special thank you to Josh, who is the tutor who trained Rob in how to do... Um, what was it the other way around? <laughs> Who's turned out tonight, so thank you, Josh. Uh, and thank you to, to Mike and others who set out the, the chairs. So, I hope that you've got uh, one of these. Has anybody spotted the deliberate? Nearly deliberate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Lent for Levi and Zacchaeus. We start with the, the first slide. Um, Yes, you could sing it again, if you like. There we are. So this evening, we're going to be looking at Levi and Zacchaeus, two tax collectors whom Jesus seeks out. And we will ask, what light this throws on being a disciple of Jesus? We will look at how Luke's Gospel portrays these two encounters by using what I've described as a narrative for reading uh, to the Gospel, and we'll also do some cultural studies to see what this might mean in terms of the background of those days. So let's begin by seeing, we just heard the two stories read to us. Let's see how some artists have interpreted them and see what you spot in comparison with what we've just read. So the first picture on slide two uh, was painted by Veronese. Uh, it's called The Feast in the House of Levi. And it's actually one of the largest of the supper painting paintings. It's five metres tall and 13 metres wide. Now, what strikes you? Very opulent. opulent, very opulent. Yeah. It is, isn't it? Very fine. Well, okay. Which one is Levi? I presume in the middle arch, there's a table with what looks like Jesus and on, talking to something that presumably is Levi with the red tunic. And on Jesus' right, somebody looks a bit like Peter. I don't know whether he's Peter doing something with, with some food. I mean, it is, the detail in it is extraordinary, but it's very much a picture of those days, the 16th century. Um, if you go to the next slide, you'll see just to the right, look at that kind of detail inside just that one arch of the three arches. Now, in fact, what happened when Veronese started to paint these, he's, he's done a number of them, um, the, uh, the Pope was not very happy with the way it was shaping up. He'd been commissioned to paint the Last Supper. Uh, and he said, I'm not sure that this is it. There are too many, as here, people dressed in our dress, it looks like a tavern somewhere in Vienna. Um, and so he said, I think we have to change this. This was nothing like it in those days. And so um, Veronese said, OK, I'll change the title. So he swapped the Last Supper and made it into the Feast of the House of Levi because there's nothing described in the New Testament there, any detail. He thought he'd, he could just leave it as it was, really. And actually, it's a pretty big picture to change. But I suggest, I, I think, I don't know that the impression seems to me to, to give the whole expanse this big, impressive feast, and there's not very much attention to what's going on. Do you know the figures are just there, aren't they, in that middle? Let's try Caravaggio. This is the calling of St. Matthew. As, as many know, Levi is also known as St. Matthew. 
And this was painted for a chapel in the church which is used by the French congregation in Rome, and it's still hanging there today. Um, what strikes you? Blonde and, right, red hair. Oh, yes, there's a, well, a reddish beard. Not, not Middle Eastern. Oh, not terribly Middle Eastern, right, okay. Quite a poor face compared to the last one. Say again? The house is much sort of poorer and simpler. Isn't it? It's much more ordinary. But was he in a house? What did the texts Tax booth. It was in his tax office. Yeah. So it would just be an ordinary room, much more like this, I would have thought. So, yes, this is nearer to it. Okay. Verse 27. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me. Then he got up and left everything, and then they went to the great banquet at his house. Which character do you think is Matthew? Uh, I beg your pardon, Levi, Matthew. Yes, I think the perspective isn't quite right. But if you look at all of those, their eyes are elsewhere, apart from this man. If you go into the next slide, you can see it more clearly. He's almost saying, me? How does that compare with what the narrative, the actual text says. Well, I could imagine Matthew being somewhat startled and saying, do you mean me? Well, then let's think about Zacchaeus, perhaps more well-known. So in the next um, picture, this was painted by somebody called uh, Bernardo Strozzi, He describes it, interesting here, the conversion of Zacchaeus. Page in 1640. Uh, The painter, uh, Strozzi, was a a Franciscan monk, and then he became a priest, uh, and spent the first years in his monastery, and then left, but continued to paint religious scenes like this. What does the scene say to you? This is Zacchaeus. Right, where's the, if you think about it in light and shade, where's the light that's bringing the real attention of the eye? It's on Jesus. What about Zacchaeus? Yes. So when you look at that, we are seeing things, as it were, almost from Jesus' point of view, where he's the person that's making things happen. And if you look, other people are all looking in. But Jesus is the one who seems to be the centre. It's his initiative. And then lastly, Jacques Tissot, who was a Frenchman, born in 1836 and moved to work in in London for a while. Um, He was somebody who, who, I think he was a Catholic Christian, if I remember rightly, and he went through a period of just, he was a very good portrait painter, and he sort of lost his way a bit. And then something moved him, and his faith came alive all over again, and he started saying, listen, I must use my gifts to paint pictures of biblical scenes. And so here's his picture. And this is, again, 
he describes it as um, Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree uh, waiting for the passage of Jesus. It's quite a long title for a picture. What, what strikes you about that? He's not the only one. No, it's true. There are other people up there, and there are others. See, to, there's, there's somebody clambering up at the moment just behind him. Yeah, he's the centre, isn't he? He's the centre of the picture. He's the largest figure. <coughs> yes. It's more, he, he's painted in more realistic, the whole picture's more realistic, yes. I mean, he was an illustrator and a portrait painter, so I think uh, he wouldn't use light and shade like some of the great classical artists. What struck me is that if you go back to the previous one, the light was on Jesus. We were, the story centred on Jesus, but here, the story centres on Zacchaeus. It's almost as if we are up in the tree with Zacchaeus, looking down on Jesus coming toward us. So we are, as it were, standing or leaning or climbing, resting, uh, where he is. And if you look on the next slide, you get a little bit more closer to it. You can see that there's the, eyes, the, the line of sight. There's the there's Jesus down there looking up, and there's Zacchaeus up there looking down. These two. So th those two artists invite us to look at this from a different point of view. Some of us, um, the first one to see how Jesus is the centre, the light of the world. This one, what must it be like to be wanting to see Jesus? And there you are looking down from the tree. Well, when we do some uh, look more closely at the passages, do bear those in mind. So if the next slide, I'll just set out what we're planning to... Oh, I beg your pardon. There's one I've... Whilst I was preparing for this, can I say thank you for the invitation to do this? Because it's given me an excuse to disappear into the study for ages. <laughs> Janet will tell you. And, uh, and so I found out all kinds of interesting things which I didn't know. And this is, this is one of them. The next slide actually shows you one of the sycamore trees in Jericho. Um, of course, the tourist guides say this is the one. Well, be that as it may. But it is, I don't know there's been radiocarbon data, but it is a really old tree. And the interesting thing is, do you see how large it is? I, I'm, I was not dubious exactly, but I've seen some very straggly, thin trees in my time. But here's, if that's the kind of tree you get there, you, could, you imagine people up there. So if you ever do the tour of the Holy Land, you go to Jericho, they'll say, and you know who went up that tree? And you'll say, no, no. <laughs> I don't think everybody knows who went up that tree. <laughs> All right. So the plan for this evening, on the next slide, we just set it out, is to, using our literary homework, using narrative reading and some cultural studies, to explore these two meetings, the meeting with Jesus and Levi and the meeting with Jesus and Zacchaeus. And I'd like to do the, Jesus and Levi together like this and then in groups to look at Jesus and Zacchaeus. And then we'll come back together and we will share um, what has struck us. And so, to begin, just to remind you, uh, narrative reading is when we look at the whole of the text and use all that we can find all through the Gospel to illuminate the one part we're looking at. It is a conscious effort to say the first context of any particular passage is the book in which that passage is found. And so we're, we're, we can look anywhere we like for anything that's similar and see how it bears on it, illuminates it, uh, or even sometimes subverts it. And then we, 
in order to sort of try and, as it rooted in reality, we, we do our cultural studies to say, well, what was it like in those days? And then narratively, so we look at structure, the, the whole of the text. Then we look at the themes, and we're going to be looking at the themes when we come to uh, at the tax collectors through the Gospel of Luke. And I'd also like to suggest it's worth looking at the language in a bit of detail. So we're going to look at narrative reading, look at structure, we're going to look at the themes, and then we're going to look just briefly at language. And I promise you it's painless. So let's begin with the structure. Um, if we go to the next slide. There we are, structure, the themes, and the language. Right. And then the next slide. You'll know this by now. Luke is divided into five sections, uh, and we need to keep that overview going. And then, if you look more closely, if we go to the next slide, uh, Jesus' ministry majors up in the north in Galilee, and eventually then there's that middle section, that long Luke 9 to 19, which is the journey to Jerusalem, and a lot of teaching and events happen and Jesus winds up in Jericho, you can just see it there, not far from Jerusalem now, where uh, the meeting with Zacchaeus took place. So Levi was in Capernaum, and the chief tax collector uh, was in Jericho. Okay, the next slide. If we place these two, we find that in the ministry of Jesus in Galilee, that's that section Luke 4 to 9, all the Galilean ministry, that's where Jesus meets Levi. And then if we look where there's a Zacchaeus story, it's there in that second long section, Luke 9 to 19. But if we look even more closely, you'll see something quite interesting. If we look, go to the next slide. That first section, the Galilean ministry, begins in Luke 5 when Jesus says, if you've got it there, well, you can just look at it. If you've got the Bible open in front of you, Jesus 5.1. One. one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of the people and so on, okay, he called his first disciples, uh, Simon Peter, uh, where is it, verse 9 and 10. And then verse, and Jesus says, don't be afraid, from now on you'll fish for people. Verse 11, they pulled up their boats and left everything and followed him. So that's the beginning of this ministry in Galilee. Luke 5, okay? So Jesus has called the first three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Then Jesus heals somebody with leprosy and heals a paralyzed man. And then verse 27, 5 verse 27, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. And he says, follow me. So he's called the three that we're familiar with, and the very next person he calls his disciple is Levi. Now, it strikes me that that's important. We, we understand the calling of Peter, James, and John because they figure large in the story. But in Luke, so right at the beginning, as it were, when Jesus is, is patterning his ministry, when Luke is trying to introduce us to Jesus' ministry, Levi figures. Three fishermen, one tax collector. And what is interesting, to, make, to underline how important this is, you've got the, where they are in the narrative, you've also got the fact that they're named. That's one of the narrative conventions. If you want to draw attention to somebody, make them more realistic, give them a name. If you just say, a oh, man, they say, oh, yeah. But you've said, Peter, ah, oh, you go. And Levi is named. Right at the beginning of the public ministry, before the rest of the disciples are called, disciple number four... <laughs> <laughs> is Levi, the tax collector. Well, just log that. 
and then we'll come back to it. Now, let's go and look at that second incident on the next slide. Do you notice that long section 9 to 19? Well, that finishes with um, Jesus getting to Jericho. After Jericho, he sets out and the entrance is in Jerusalem. So in Luke 18, Jesus finally reaches Jericho. He's there. He's almost, the journey to Jerusalem is almost over. And the very last person to be called, to be challenged, is Zacchaeus. This time a chief tax collector. And once again, Luke 19:1, Jesus goes out and finds a tax collector who's up a tree. So at the beginning and at the end of Jesus' ministry, public ministry, when he did many things, one of the things of which was to, was to call a group of disciples, out of which he then chose 12 after a night of prayer, we've got tax collectors at the beginning and at the end. So clearly, the, the tax collectors are important to Luke. Now, what is their importance? We've got to see if we can find that out a bit tonight. Let's move on and look at the distribution. If we go to the next slide, that's the, let's take the theme, tax, tax collector. They first appear, actually, in Luke 3, before Jesus starts his ministry, when they are some of them come to John the Baptist. And if you turn just across to Luke 3, it's quite near. Three, verse 12. Even tax collectors came to John to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Because John was preaching for a baptism of repentance of sins. And he said, don't collect any more than you're required to. Do you notice that first word in verse 12? Even tax collectors. I mean, does that not give you a bit, little bit of a hint? A hint? You know, all these people went out to, to be baptised by John, to repent of their sins. They wanted to welcome God's new way. And do you know, even tax collectors went. And you can see people going, uh, yeah, don't believe it. I promise you, even tax collectors. Then it goes on, Jesus calls Levi's, we've seen. Uh, and then some of the tax collectors who are baptised by John become friends of Jesus. Then they come to hear Jesus. Then there's a parable. And then finally, there's the Zacchaeus story we're going to look at tonight. Now, this parable is astonishing. It is really revolutionary. I mean, actually, what we're reading tonight is revolutionary, as I hope it will gradually unfold. Um, but look at, this, look at this parable, Luke 18. Luke 18, starting at verse 9. To some who were confident of their righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Can't think who that might be. Well, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. And everybody in the crowd thought, oh, yeah, well, that's all right. We know who's cracked how to pray, don't we? 
And the Pharisee stood by himself, God, I thank you, I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. And the crowd, hearing that, would be saying, yeah, good man, you know. I think I said in one of the earlier sessions, to have a Pharisee in the family was actually a huge, huge plus. Um, it was a, if, you might, if your uncle was a Pharisee, you were, that was nice. That was like having, I don't know what your contemporary equivalent would be. Who's your hero? If you were, I don't know, choose your hero and be, be related to them, something like that. It was really, these were the people, these were the people who were respected. They took their faith seriously. They prayed, they fasted, they tithed, they went off on retreats. They used to learn scripture by heart. They, they brought all of their life under the, the reign of God as they could see it. So everybody says, oh yeah, look at this Pharisee. This is how to do it. There, there's a man. And then Jesus went on, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, they, and then the crowd would say, do you know, that tax collector, I think he understands things exactly as they are. Do you know, these tax collectors. And Jesus says, now, which of those do you think went justified before God? And what was the crowd going to say? Well, it's obvious, isn't it, Lord? And what does Jesus say? For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble... Jesus took a tax collector and put a tax collector over against the Pharisee and said, the tax collector's got it and the Pharisee hasn't. And people would say, no, Lord, absolutely not. It's like today saying people in church understand about Christianity. Those who never darken the doors of a church, they have the faintest idea. And Jesus says, did you know it's the other way around? And you think, no, of what? Is he? I hope it isn't. <laughs> well, then, let's look more closely than... Um, at this. We've looked then at the themes and how they distribute themselves. Let's just lastly look at the language. And I've already pointed out one point. In Luke um, Luke 5, uh, sorry, Luke 3, we had that mentioned, even tax collectors. And later on in Luke 7, it's the same. Even tax collectors. There's a general looking down the nose at tax collectors. And if you look In verse five, chapter 5, verse, uh, 30, verse 30, the Pharisees say to Jesus, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Quite often, those two names are put side by side, tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners. And in the parable, the tax collector actually said he's a sinner. So they were clearly people who, in the gospel, were right at the margin. They're on the edge. They were people you didn't want to have anything to do with. Well, let's do some cultural studies then. If we go to the next slide. Uh, I'll, I'll canter through this, if I may. Galilee was a client state, which meant it had its own, well, it had its own ruler, Herod, who rather saw himself as a king. He wasn't a king. He was actually just a ruler under the Roman emperor. Uh, and so the taxes raised in Galilee, the taxes that Levi would have collected, would have gone to Herod, and then Herod had to make sure they went on to the Roman emperor. But Judea, down in the south, where Ju Jerusalem was situated, that was a provincial, sorry, that was an imperial province, and they had there a direct prefect. That was a Roman appointed who was Roman, 
and that was uh, Pontius Pilate. And, and that he was, he, one of his tasks was to make sure that the taxes went. So the, the North and the South had different tax regimes, but it all boiled down to the same thing, that taxes were taken from the people and uh, they were sent on to the Romans, the occupying force. The way it worked was that the Romans tried different systems and, and eventually agreed that the best way to do it was to um, auction, a bit like uh, Virgin and O2 and all that for their band, their, uh, mobile phone networks, to auction the right to raise tax in a province. And, and these really wealthy Roman businessmen would bid for them when they got the auction, the auction said, we will provide to the emperor so much, and then they could go and just do it however they liked. So they went and then appointed locals, who were often, as in this case, Jews, in the country, and their job was to raise the money. And in order to get them to do it, they said, you may mark up what you raise. And in order, I mean, the whole thing was... Uh, open to abuse. In order to raise a tax, you had to value something. And so Levi, who sat at the tax booth uh, in Capernaum, he would see people bringing in catches of fish. And he would say, that catch of fish is worth, I don't know, a uh, thousand denarii. And the tax on fish is, I think it was a tenth, so I want a hundred denarii. And then there's the management fee, and that's another 25 denarii. So the hundred goes off, the 25 goes into his pocket. And so the tax collector could walk along and say, show me what you've got, I'll tell you what it's worth, and then I'll tell you the tax you're going to pay me, and if you don't pay me, I will tell you you're going to jail. It was extraordinary power. And because they had different people bidding in different parts of the world, they didn't have the same taxes, and you know, it was just it was open season for tax collectors to, get, to become rich at other people's expense. And that was the way it worked. So if we go on to the next slide, it was auctioned off, they went, they valued, they calculated the tax, they added their marker, and they prosecuted how to pay. Um, the taxes were many. There was a poll tax, there was an income tax, 1% of your income, there was a crop tax, a one tenth for grain, one fifth for rye, there was a sale tax, there was an import and export tax. There was tax going in and out of the province. In fact, the reason that Simon lived in Capernaum rather than the other side of the lake was because there, the tax was less. At least that's what they think. As a businessman, you'd have thought that. Canny man. Um, if, you can, if you reduce your tax take, you, you have more for your own self. So the Romans saw this as a way of raising money in order to fund the Roman Empire, which, as part of it being an empire, put the occupying troops on the ground. So the money that was being raised was actually being used to oppress you. So you can just imagine how tax collectors went down locally. My dad's a tax collector. You know, well, it was worse than that because people knew who they were and they were ostracised, as, as you'll see. Nothing like tax collectors today. I remember going to preach at one church and a lady said at the door, I can't tell you what my, son's, my son does. And she said, oh, all right, I will. He's a tax collector. And I said, I'm, I'm pleased to hear it. She said, mm. <laughs> so we need taxes to make the thing run. Um, it was nothing like that. These were mini-entrepreneurs who were just, they had the power with no accountability. Let's look at then how the rabbis saw them, because the rabbis give us a take on how they fitted in with the Jewish society. On the next slide, you'll see. They were seen, tax collectors were greedy and they were extortionate. If we go back one, 
Thank you, that one, yeah. Uh, they were considered because they supported the occupying part of it. They were traitors. Because they raised money and gave it to the emperor, they were considered unfaithful to God. So they were actually ostracized in their own society. The rabbis taught that a tax collector was not a proper member of Jewish society, even though he was a Jew. He was banned from the temple. He was banned from the synagogue. He was not trusted, so he couldn't be a witness in any court case. Uh, any money that they possessed was defiled because of where it's come from, and it was refused. When you went to the temple, or when you, you asked somebody to make a sacrifice, you changed the Roman currency for the local temple currency. Uh, they wouldn't even allow a tax collector to send it out by remote control. Rabbis described, and these are, these are quotes from the rabbinic literature, tax collectors are licensed robbers, beasts in human shape. In society, they were considered the lowest of the low. So drawing together these threads, how they're seen by the Romans, how they're seen by the rabbis, and how it's seen by Luke, the tax collectors were the opposite of everything a pious Jew stood for. They were despised by faithful Jews. They would have nothing to do with them. Their standing was much worse than just being greedy money men, as the title may have suggested. They were actually the people who were, um, they were considered um, traitors. They were, you didn't want to have anything to do with them. They were, you, and you kept that distance and so what do we have? We have tax collectors as far worse than we might have thought at first. Well then, let's look then at Luke 5 in more detail. Luke 5, 27. Jesus had just called Peter, James and John. He'd done teaching. And then after this, he went out and he saw a tax collector, verse 27, by the name of Levi, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Jesus went to the last person anybody would consider was a member of society or could be a, a pious Jew and invited Levi to follow him. It's not impossible, though I expect it was, that Levi might even have taxed Peter on his fishing catch. Who knows? It's not impossible. And Jesus is saying, I want you to follow me. Do you remember that picture, the Caravaggio, one where Matthew would say, me? With his... Now, that's it seems to me, is an extraordinary decision of Jesus. It's almost he's gone out and looked for the worst character you can imagine in your neighbourhood and said, I'd like you to follow me, to be my disciple. And then, rats, the man's gone and said, yes, and he says, he's coming. Can you imagine? Peter, James and John, when they heard the news, what do you imagine they were thinking? <laughs> oh, very good, Lord. <laughs> yes, we were going to get round to that eventually, so. Jesus is putting together people who had been enemies, who had no respect for each other, and he was saying, you both belong if you follow me. It's extraordinary. It's revolutionary. So if we go on to the next slide, 
we've got Levi, the spies, the unfaithful, the traitor, the sinner, the collaborator. And he and Peter, James, and John are the only four people who are named when Jesus started counting disciples. So it was very important that Levi was there because he's named. And yet, what kind of person is he? It seems to me that what's happening here is that Jesus is stretching what people think, what pious, faithful, prayerful, religious people think. And actually, to make it really, really clear, Levi, Matthew, was not expecting this. He was just doing his business. This was Jesus' bright idea. He went out and fished him. Do you know, he just said to Peter, listen, you will be a fisher of people. Watch, I'll show you how to do it. And the next thing he does, watch. And he goes into a task. His booth said, come and follow me. And you can see, you can imagine anyway, Peter going, what? To me, I find that makes my understanding of Jesus bigger and, and broader in the sense of more inclusive than I imagined when I started out. I don't know what that says for you. Something's happening here which is turning upside down the values which society then held. And not just society, the faithful in society. I mean, the interesting question would be, what would be the analogue for us? With the death of Martin McGuinness, I would have thought some Northern Ireland Protestants would have thought having a Catholic come to your Bible study and prayer meeting, especially one who'd been engaged in the troubles and maybe a militant, uh, um, would have been just terrible. And yet, do you remember the story of that man who lost his daughter? But as a Christian, found that Jesus helped him forgive and embrace the people who arranged to have her killed. It's that stretch that Jesus is talking about. And, and Jesus is just doing it. The disciples don't have any say. All they've got to do is say, Lord, we're just, we want to learn from you. We're willing to be changed by you. And, and now look what you've gone and done. So where for us, where is our boundary where we think actually outside of that uh, there are people whom we wouldn't expect? Who, who might roll up in church one Sunday and you think, I'd never expect to see them here? Now the trouble is a lot of Christians, they've so built their busy lives around the, the church and, and the church's penumbra of activities, they don't know many people who they don't think they'd ever see in church, if you see what I mean. <laughs> But actually, there are. They're all over the place. Well, what is Jesus saying to his church? What, what does discipleship mean? Does it mean just come and join in so we're, we're nice and friendly? And Isn't it lovely to have a church where people don't disagree and they're all kind of lovey-dovey or something like that? Well, they make you coffee anyway. Um, Jesus is saying it's much bigger than that. Much bigger. And I don't know... what. Whether if, if there was a Muslim, little militant Muslim group somewhere here in Birmingham and we invited them to come, each of us 
prayerfully probably need to say to the Lord, Lord, where do I draw my comfort zone boundary? Have I actually domesticated the gospel by saying, I know, Lord, really you're only interested in people like me. Or if they're not, if you're interested in somebody else, I'm not the one for it. <laughs> Let somebody else do it. It's more radical, it's more profound being a disciple of Jesus. And actually, can you just imagine what those disciples were like? They didn't see eye to eye. Well, they had two brothers, James and John, who, who already knew. They had a reputation for arguing, even when they were family. Then you had all these different things. You had a, a zealot, you had a sort of a, the mix in the disciples. They were not comfortable. And the one thing, it seems to me, that comes clear in this the thing that gave them their identity was not that they belonged to uh, the group called disciples, but they belonged to Jesus. The common factor was not the church as it became known, it was Jesus. What held those differences was Jesus. And because of Jesus being at the centre, all these differences can be managed well, up to a point, Paul and Barnabas agreed to go different ways because they couldn't sort out how to do it. I think one of the dangers that the Church of England has fallen into as the established church, and those who are not basically Church of England here, um, you can listen, but don't, don't gloat. The Church of England has deliberately cultivated the sense that we are open to everybody who lives in this country. We are the national state church and all of that. And therefore, we want to make the ways in as least costly as possible. So you can come to church, you don't have to do anything. Um, in fact, I think, I, I don't know, I told you the story of David Frost and his little survey. Didn't I? David, well, David Frost, in the, in the days, in the two years when that program, that was the week that was, was running. Do you remember that? Yeah. Ah. We're all that old then. <laughs> David Frost did a piece to camera where he said that we did a survey of churches in England, in Britain, and the Church of England came top. First, he said, completely straight-faced, because you can just walk in. You don't have to apply for many, nothing like that. If you want to go, just walk in. Second, he said, because it doesn't cost anything. That was those days. It does cost things these days. But third and best of all, he said, nobody need ever know you'd be. We've cultivated an anonymous kind of Christianity which has sold short what it's about. And the number of people who say, whose gospel, which should be, Jesus has made a difference in my life and he'll do it for you, has become, I go to church and I find it helpful, why don't you come to church? The good news is not the church. The good news is Jesus. And it is Jesus who changes us. And the church helps and sometimes doesn't, and does usually. But we've somehow made it easier to talk about, you go to the church, I go to church, do you go to church? We find it harder to talk about Jesus, who wants us to, to be the kind of people who are going to change the world. But we do like to have a church where we think, when you go there, you're made welcome. Um, and it's great. I'm not knocking welcoming churches. You've just spent a year doing it. <laughs> Very pleased to hear it. And we've been made welcome when we turned up. But that's not the heart of the matter. And Jesus is showing here by inviting Levi in to join with Peter, James and John that this is much more radical than you've bargained for, my friends. Jesus will show us what he wants. And I, th I think I've used the story before. That I was ordained by an old bishop in the church 
who said, he wrote a letter to a clergyman saying, Dear Bloggs, I'm worried about you because I've had no letters of complaint recently. <laughs> if you're doing the business for Jesus, complaints must come because this world is not how he wants it. The poor are not how he wants those who struggle, those who are disadvantaged, those who have power, those who have wealth, those who, who gender stereotype, and so it goes on. This is not how Jesus wants it. And therefore, if we start to begin to work towards making a difference, there will be people who will say, that's not what we think. The church should, you know, it should be, they used to say, the Tory party at prayer, but basically they're just meaning those who like it now. If you want to go to church, that's lovely, but don't get in, involved with politi politics. Do you remember Tony Blair being asked, um, do you pray? Did you pray with President, was it Nixon or whoever he, when he met? And Alistair Campbell intervened, we don't do God. Do you remember? Yeah. Well, Jesus says, we jolly well do. Whatever our calling is, we are his people first and only second are we teachers, doctors, whatever it is. So, Levi, I think, puts a question mark over where our boundaries are and who we feel that God is calling us toward to serve. And, and if you turn up on Sunday with about three people who've never been here before and they don't fit in, it'll be wonderful. If you do five, it'll be better. Now, do you see how that flows out of this? Well, what I'd like you to do now is to just... Is to, to do the same sort of exercise by looking at the story of Zacchaeus. And just as it were, playing it through. If you play it through here, if, if I just do it, if I just map it for those for whom maybe this is the first time. If we go to the next slide. If we put Jesus in the story of the meeting with Levi, first of all, put yourself in his shoes. He's thinking, I want a tax collector who wants to respond. I'm looking around, there's one. So he takes initiative and he goes. He then says, follow me, which means come and be with me. He then accepts the invitation to the supper in Levi's house. That was terrible. And when people criticised him, he said, I've, called, I've come for people like this. So from Jesus' point of view, this is exactly, it's meat and drink to those who are like Jesus. Look at it from Levi's point of view, the next slide. Levi's sitting there, counting his money, that's why I think the Caravaggio picture actually is, is pretty close to what it was about. He's surprised that Jesus comes in. He looks up and, and then he's even more surprised to be invited to follow him. And being a man with figures and numbers, he calculates, right, okay, you're on, I will. And he wants to express his thanks, so he has his great banquet and he brings in to the banquet other people to see the Jesus whom he's going to follow and then look at the, the, the Pharisees, the, the, the people outside. The next slide. The Pharisees. Lord, don't you know, these are very, very great sinners. And God wants us to keep away from such people. Well, when you look at Zacchaeus, if you'd like to put yourself in, in Zacchaeus's shoes and look at the, play through the story, then Jesus's shoes, <coughs> and then the people. Because by now, the people are beginning to get a bit worried as well. So we'll divide into groups, if we may. If the two beta groups would like to follow your leaders, I mean, do you have particular places, oh, beta groups? 
Have you got your regular seat in church? <laughs> right, so, so Janet and Carolyn, would you like to stand and set out? Go and capture your base, as it were. And then, if we'd actually just form groups and work through um, the questions on the handout. Please feel free to turn the handout upside down. And then I'll give you a, a shout in a bit. Welcome back. I found one of the great things about having a discussion group around a passage is that people will see things that you've never seen. And they'll offer them and you'll think, ooh, that could be right. Well, it couldn't, but at least they've tried to have another perspective on things. So we've just got about five minutes for anything that struck you uh, in your discussion group uh, with this. And I'll repeat it for the microphone for those who um, uh, are listening on a, on a tape. I imagine most of you knew it backwards, didn't you, before you started? I, I was uh, imagining that as he was the chief tax collector, there isn't uh, anything more said in, in the Bible about... There isn't anything more said in the Bible about him being a disciple, so we assume he stayed in his job. And therefore, did he, as he was a chief, did he influence all the people under him? And, you know, uh, okay. influence that way. Uh, good question. Um, there are two uh, mentions of Zacchaeus after the New Testament was written. Uh, one of them suggests, um, by somebody called Clement of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers, thought maybe Zacchaeus was the person... He took a name, Matthias, and then when in Acts they had to elect somebody to replace Judas, he might have been that person. Um, I think that's less likely than more likely, because if you remember in Acts it says, we need to choose somebody who's been with us through all these things since the baptism of John. And I think Zacchaeus only came late in the day. But the second reading is more, uh, suggestion is more interesting, that he actually became the bishop of Caesarea. Uh, on the coast. So, I mean, obviously he was an able person. So uh, that, I think, it, it does seem to make sense. That's found in the thing called the Apostolic Constitutions, just in case anybody asks you on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> Another comment? Mark? Hang on a second. <laughs> Can you just pass this to Mark? For the benefit of those... At home. Well, it's John, it was John Gilbert's idea, but we discussed whether uh, Levi maybe had a sort of an early prayer breakfast uh, with Zacchaeus as a tax collector's convention, and say, I met this chap Jesus, and, um, and that perhaps stimulated Zacchaeus' interest into run, which they wouldn't do in those days, and to climb a tree, which they wouldn't have done in those days. So uh, just part of the narrative. I, we don't know enough to say yes or no, but I think it's those sort of questions which you think it makes it more rounded that that, there was, that was possible. Yeah, like I suggested, when the Levi might have taxed Peter's Simon Peter's fish, that'd have been really interesting, or not. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, sorry. Back to a, to, to one, Pete at the back. I'm sure that the fact that we're both tax collectors at some point, I'm not sure. I think it's highly likely that there will be no overlap. Because the group that followed Jesus was not huge. I mean, it may have been up to 100 people at most at those points. 
I think we've, we picked up the same sort of idea, really, but we thought that uh, they could well have had, like, a, mm. a special tax collector's club because they were pushed out by everybody else where they met together, and particularly these were both, I think, senior tax collectors in a way. They were both very wealthy, mm. and they might well have had their own little province, and they probably, as senior tax collectors, probably even milking the ones lower down, so they took an extra cut to get themselves well, even wealthier. That would apply to Zacchaeus, but Levi was a standard tax collector. Right. He would, Zacchaeus would have been his boss. And, and Zacchaeus was based in Jericho, and Jericho was the place where they had a thriving balsam, balsam I think they call it, trade. It's, it's these aromatic saps that you get out of trees. And it was a really wealthy place. So if he was taking percentages of that... As it says, he was wealthy. He was seriously wealthy. Yes. But uh, how they were incorporated, what an what a interesting question. And if he did wind up as a bishop in the church, that says something about the disciples willing to embrace somebody who's so different. Thank you. Any other comments? I, I was thinking about the picture of him. In no, the... I'm sorry. I Just, we have to wait for the microphone to travel. Yeah, yeah. It's on its way. I can see it. It's like crowd surfing. This is... <laughs> oh. Have a go. When he was up in the, the tree, uh, this is Zacchaeus, uh, he looked quite well dressed. And presumably, being the chief, he would have had plenty of money, so therefore mm. his clothes would have been that much uh, more opulent. And to see a bloke like that up a tree mm. must have really struck Jesus. You know, ah, this, sure. this, this person isn't just. You know, somebody who you, you expect to shin up a tree, but somebody in his Sunday best, you know, mm. obviously very keen. Oh, what, that's right, obviously very keen. Thank you. I put in there one question for fun. Um, what was the real reason why Zacchaeus struggled to see Jesus? because he was a social outcast. And the crowd wouldn't... I'm sure there were little people in the crowd. <laughs> and they'd say, go on, come here, you know, But him, you know, he's been joking, because yeah. he was a social outcast. That's why. Yeah. And he had, to, he had to go ahead of the crowd, climb in a tree. I mean, climb... I mean, wow, well, as you say, he was keen. Yeah. yeah. Um, OK, any other... Any other fresh thought? Yeah, do you want to... Hang on, I'll walk around. It's just a thought come to me. We've talked about Peter and the other disciples finding it perhaps very difficult to get on with Levi. Yeah. But it might not have been quite like that. They might have thought they were going to get mates' rates. <laughs> <laughs> yes, one of, the, one of the commentators suggests, but though without any evidence, that the, um, when Levi had that great banquet and then invited all his friends in, and Jesus came. Levi did actually follow Jesus. So rather like Peter and his fishing, he, he must have parked the job and set out. Um, so there, there might have been a chance of mates rates with Levi, but I'm not sure about Zacchaeus. <laughs> all right. Okay. Um, I arrived in Birmingham uh, as uh, somebody who'd been a mission partner overseas and then was as a rector in Middleton and Wishaw just nearby and then became a canon in the cathedral. And I was the canon missioner for Birmingham Diocese. And in my travels, I met people at all 
stages of being belonging to church, coming to church, being hurt, damaged by church, fed up with church, and left church, post-church. There's a whole variety, whole spectrum. And I met somebody, um, an Afro-Caribbean gentleman, uh, an older man, and, and he told me this story. He said he came on the SS Windrush. Do you, do you recall that? And he said, and he was a good Anglican, so he went to his nearby Anglican church on Sunday and worshipped with them. And on the way out, the vicar stood at the door and said, it's lovely to see you, but please don't come back, because if you come, all these people won't. And I thought, that's in my time. That's not history. That's just 20 years ago. And I thought, we, we do need to take seriously the radical call here, unless we are doing that unwittingly. I, I think that vicar was completely mis mistaken. Um, he probably didn't know what he was doing. He just thought he, was, he didn't want to lose the flock that was there, I presume. And that's what happens when you make the church the centre of your faith. Now, for a vicar, you might say, well, it's his job, I suppose. But it, it, it's the temptation. Our church is our church. It isn't. We are Jesus' people. That's, our identity is Jesus. We, we're not, we are Christians, not churchians, although sometimes we act like churchians, if you see what I mean. Yeah? John, uh, one second. Your, your question five about Jesus took a lot of initiative in this. In our little group, we thought that... Sorry, do you start again? Go on. Yeah. In the question about Jesus took initiative, um, why do we think it was a, a, so appropriate? Because we see Zacchaeus' response comes, brings Jesus home, but then he says, I'm going to restore. And he restores fourfold. And this opened up the, the whole area that there can be repentance. There is something beyond repentance called restitution and making good. And John here reminded us that the Levitical... Um, law was that if you fiddled the books, you repaid fourfold. Yep. Thank you. Yeah, just a personal testimony about being rejected. In an earlier incantation of mine, I was in a religious community, um, which some might have called your local net friendly neighborhood cult. And <laughs> oh, one of the starts of it, or, or one of the first members, were a bunch of converted Hells Angels who had made a transition, they were on the road, to, I suppose, people perhaps more like us. But the problem was, no church could handle them. And I don't know how much they couldn't handle the church. But the cultures were so different, mm. they couldn't fit in. But the community was so um, different anyway, they seemed to fit in there. Mm. And, and that's today, isn't it? I mean, those, yeah, that was... The health and groups That today. would have been about 1975 in okay. Birmingham. Yeah. Uh, 40 Bearwood, in fact. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. It, it's, it's difficult to change your culture. And as soon as somebody else walks into the room, things change. Yeah. It is, and sometimes it, it is unconscious the way we are trapped... Luther wrote a tract. Oh, sorry, another thought. The other thought, the other thought is... <laughs> <laughs> Which nobody else has mentioned. We had quite a strong discussion about this. 
that in both instances, because they both received Jesus with joy, that it, this may have been an event, a very major event, but in a journey that had already begun. They may already be wanting to break out of what they were trapped in. Mm. And Jesus was the first one to say, okay, if you come with me, you break out. Mm. I think that's certainly... You, I think that's a, a realistic proposal for Zacchaeus because he, he was up the tree. I mean, he meant business if he was, as you say, in his fine clothes climbing trees. Uh, Levi, we, I think we... I, I don't know what we know about Levi because there isn't very much there at all. But it is actually... It doesn't suggest that Levi was looking for him, whereas Zacchaeus at least was doing. So I think that's, that's the kind of thing which might be true of Zacchaeus. And he might not even be able to put into words quite what it was. I think some people come to Christ um, not quite knowing why. That they're, just, they're looking for something and then Jesus appears to them or something. Um, <coughs> when I was working both in Birmingham and then up in Bradford, we had Muslims who were becoming Christians. And, and we had all these people with PC ideas about the way you do and don't relate to different cultures. And they just said, um, well, Jesus appeared to me in a dream and said, follow me. So I said, okay, I'm going to. And, and you think, just be quiet and listen to these people who found a different way to the same Lord. It was, it was quite impressive, really. And Janet and I would say, actually, we miss that sort of um, mixture of people with all kinds of... We, we had um, some um, Zairean refugees who would sing songs in either Swahili or, or some version thereof, um, as the way they worshipped the Lord. And it was different, and it was and they'd come a different way to Jesus, and it was refreshing. Um, so maybe we can, we can encourage that a bit here. Thank you, John. Um, right. Well, can I say, if we just put the last slide up, um, Josh. Jesus overturns the expectations of what God's community be like. I think in every community you get differences because we've had different histories and we have different ideas and the church has got, had different streams and we all turn up. We, I've been struck by the number of people who said to me, um, this is my church for now. I feel the Lord has called me here, but I'm not really an Anglican. Um, you don't need all 27 of you to stand up and say it again, but I'm just struck by how many different routes have brought people to APC. And we do have differences. And with those differences, we are shaped. We've been socialised in different ways of understanding faith and expressing it. And yet here we are, bumping along together, here. So it seems to me that if this is what Jesus is doing, he's, if we've come here because Jesus has called us, then we're, we're doing a bit what Zacchaeus was doing. I'm not quite sure I've chosen this lot, Lord, but as you are the one here, and um, okay, I'm up for it, because you called me. And it seems to me that is the way you begin to work with your, your brethren. Um, the court in Cyprus is made to people of every background. No one is ever excluded. When a rabbi invited disciples to follow, the disciples followed to, first of all, to learn from the rabbi, but second, to become like the rabbi. And so when Jesus takes the role of the rabbi with those early disciples, he's actually saying, not just learn from me, but be like me. And I think that's true for us then. As we as Christians, we want to be like Jesus. So if, if Jesus is going out and finding the most wacky people off the planet, off the edge of whatever it is, then ought not we to be doing the same? Uh, it's so easy to settle and to just 
being with people who you share lots of values with. It's not so hard, is it, to find things in common and agree and stuff. But where, if we're listening to Jesus, he may take us into quite different places and hopefully meet people there who you might want to bring back. Um, what holds together this group of very different Christians? Well, I've said already, it's Jesus. The identity of the disciples is found in Jesus. It's not found in the, we are the disciples. We'll look at this next week, the 12, um, the apostles. It's found in Jesus as Lord and not in who are the church members. They did an in- a series of interviews with people who'd become Christians for one of these surveys. And one of the things that came clear is that those who found their way to a living faith in Christ always said something like this. I was wondering about this, I was circuit about that, or I wasn't. But I sensed it was Jesus who came and found me. I didn't convert myself. He converted me to follow him. And I've been trying to work that out ever since. And I think that is the Jesus who goes out to seek and to save the lost. And I'm so grateful, personally, that he found me. And I'm sure you'd say the same. And now he wants us to be doing that to others. We are his hands and his feet, in a way. And so when we meet people and love them, clearly in the name of Jesus, they say, oh, perhaps it's Jesus, and and so it rolls on. So for me, this is a challenge, to become like the Jesus who found me, to go looking, uh, to, to go fishing. I'm really struck by that early bit where Jesus says to Peter, you'll be fishing people, watch what I do and do what I do. And then he goes and does it with Levi. I mean, grief, what a first example to learn from. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came and found us and called us to follow you. Thank you. Thank you for that reminder. And thank you that in you we find our unity and our identity as individuals and as a community of disciples. And Lord, we pray for the churches in this land where culture has so domesticated the gospel that you will set us free to follow where you lead and to embrace those who are different but you are approaching and calling. Lord, we ask that you'll bring to mind as we pray those for whom we already know you want us to share with the gospel with them and we've just been shy or avoided it or not got round to it quite just yet. Lord, by your Holy Spirit we pray you'll set us free to become more like you as we go out fishing for people. And this we pray in your name. Amen. And let's pray for each other in the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with these all evermore. Amen. Thank you.